Hi there, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Modern House podcast. I'm Matt Gibbard, co-founder of the Modern House. Today's guest is the engaging, expert and effortlessly erudite architect, Claire Wright. As someone who's recently designed the Museum of the Home in London with her practice, Wright & Wright Architects, Claire knows more than a thing or two about modern living. I've asked her to pick her three favourite living spaces from anywhere in the world, and she'll be taking us on an architectural pilgrimage through Pennsylvania, Andalusia and Finland talking about everything from natural light to acoustics to courtyard gardens. Before we get going, I just wanted to let you know about my new book, which is called A Modern Way to Live. Firstly, as a writer at the World of Interiors and then through my work with The Modern House, my life over the past 20 years or so has been about getting behind the scenes of people's homes, having a good rummage around in their pantries and seeing how they choose to live. I've been fascinated to discover that all of these brilliant people seem to live by the same set of unwritten design principles. The purpose of the book is to show you what these are and how you might implement some of them in your own home. I've grouped them together into five simple and digestible themes. So you've got space, light, materials, nature and decoration. The book is being published by Penguin and it's out on the 28th of October. Before that date, you can also pre-order it from bookshops like Wardstones. Just search A Modern Way to Live by Matt Gibbard. Right, without further ado, let's start the podcast. So hi, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. I just want to start by talking about your practice, Right and Right Architects. So for those people who might not be familiar with it, can you just talk a little bit about what you do and what you would say you stand for as a practice? Well, I started the practice with Sandy, who's my life and work partner, and we have two other partners, and there are 20 of us in total. Okay. What we try to do is to really understand the place that we're building, mm. and sometimes that's about buildings, and sometimes it's about landscape. We always want to uh, relate to the landscape, and when we look at the place, it's never what it seems at the outset. So it's almost like an archaeological exploration. And then we are interested in understanding what the client is aspiring to. And so we're looking at the past and what exists, and then we're looking to the future. They tend to be quite big strategic moves. And then we also get into the detail, and we're very, very interested in how things are made and in using traditional materials but our buildings are extremely sustainable, so they're pretty much all now net zero carbon. Okay, that's good. Something you've been working on for a while, but is coming to fruition now, is the Museum of the Home, um, previously known as the Jeffrey Museum. I've always loved going to the Jeffrey Museum, um, and I'm sure it's better than ever, but could you just tell us about what you've done there and your work on that building? Yes. Well, I loved the, the, the museum too, and went there with my kids. And I also once went there by myself when I, just before an interview and I was trying to find a place to eat a sandwich and I, I had seen the herb garden, which is the secret garden in the museum. And when we were commissioned, the client's idea was that we were going to build a big new building. Yeah. And they sort of envisaged this white concrete building. And when we looked at what was there, we thought that what made it magical was the synergy between it being about home and being in 
small homes that mm. the core of it were the period rooms which were settings that were in a domestic setting where the floorboards sort of creaked and okay. and um so it, it has all the essence of a home and when we looked at what was there they had this 300 year old building uh, which actually was in terrible condition so they were going to display precious objects and the most precious object was the building and they were only using the middle floor and when it was converted into a museum, all the staircases and walls and floors had been taken out, so they destabilised it. So we realised that if you just dug down a metre, then you had the whole of the lower floor. Okay. And if you took out ceilings, and then you also could open up into the roof space. And we felt that was the essence of the museum. You know, in theatre, people talk about found space, but what often happens in museums is that people will create this big anonymous white space mm. that's air-conditioned. And so what we wanted to do was to create something actually that felt much more domestic mm. because you're looking at quite small objects as well, so it's quite intimate, and they had this fabulous garden. So one of the most important elements for us was relating to the outside and relating to the garden. And creating places along the route where you could go out either because you'd kids and they just had enough <laughs> or what do you mean <laughs> <laughs> i think we've all been there and uh, or you just wanted to sit in the sun yeah yeah it's a, it's a lovely spot there isn't it and has it still got the, the room sets from different eras in there it does it a, does okay. and they've expanded it because one of the themes was that they took a certain period of time, so 1633 or something, and every object in the room is 1633. But they've added new rooms, so they've got 1970s uh, room, which was done by Michael McMillan, the film director. So that shows uh, people who have recently arrived as part of the Windrush, and so it okay. reflects an Afro-Caribbean 1970s lifestyle. And I went with somebody whose parents came from St. Lucia then. And she, yeah. she said they've got to see it because they would just love it. Yeah. So it's much broader. Uh, it's good. much more about everybody because home is so diverse, isn't right. it? And what it means to anybody. I mean, even homelessness or, or all those other aspects that they're now reflecting. Has it taught you anything about home that you hadn't always thought about? It made me think about it. There are two elements of the exhibition that I thought were fascinating. And one was, it says, where did you get that? And they said, in everybody's home, you have things that have come from all over the place, you know, at least, I mean, there might be somebody who went out and bought the lot from John Lewis, but generally speaking, you inherited something from your granny or mm. it was there when you arrived or you've always hated it, but you've got to hang on to it or whatever it is. So that was interesting. And also... The idea that people curate their home, probably post-COVID more than ever, because you know people sort of set themselves up with the backdrop, don't they have the right books or whatever <laughs> objects? <laughs> but um, but it's true that people do curate. You know, they exhibit things. Or that's right. I mean, in my home, we collect. A lot of it's things our kids gave us. You know, they can never be thrown out. Mm. But we also sort of we collect sort of um, folded paper things, folded paper cards, and things like that. Why do you do that? Why do I do yeah. that? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think do, you think, do you feel like you're talking to yourself or to others when you're doing it? The paper card started 
because somebody sent Sandy a birthday card that folded out beautifully. Okay. And so then I think it turned into a theme of, you know, we always find a card for Sandy. So I suppose it becomes a connection between you and then it is this beautiful object, isn't it, at the same yeah. time? That's, that, that's, that's the magic formula, isn't it? Something that's beautiful to live with, but also is infused with that memory of a place or a person, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Where do you live now then? Camden. And what kind of building? I live in a four-storey house, which we bought as a dangerous structure with an incontinent alcoholic sitting tenant in the attic. <laughs> because that was how we could afford it. <laughs> Is he still living there? We, we are still living there. No, is he still living no, there? No, he's not still living there. We converted the basement and moved him into a self-contained studio. Okay. And uh, he thrived for a while, but then he went into sheltered accommodation. Okay. And we always felt he came with the house. We couldn't have bought the house actually without Johnny. That's and so we felt an obligation to Johnny. So it's a bit, little bit like Alan Bennett's lady in the van, isn't it? Yes, yes. Johnny was more self-contained. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it was a bit. Well, except, I mean, in, in our case, we couldn't, we couldn't have bought the house if it hadn't been for Johnny. We couldn't have afforded it without Johnny, actually. Right. And when we first moved in, he was terrified. He thought we were going to evict him. And we could have, actually. But we got him a social worker instead, and we converted the basement for him. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. And... You must have been there many years now, have you? We have. We have been there many years. We've been there 30 years. That's amazing. It's quite rare, isn't it, now? It's, fun, it's, fu it's funny because yesterday my eldest daughter, Indigo, who's eight, said to me, um, Daddy, do some people live in the same house for their whole life? And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, they do. And she said, wow, that must be so boring. And uh, <laughs> she's been completely indoctrinated because since she's been alive, we've moved quite a few times as we kind of do. And to her, I think, unfortunately, home at the moment has been quite an impermanent thing. And it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? What's it like to live in the same place for 30 years? I have lived in very few homes. I lived in the same house when I was growing up all my life. And then I only stayed in a couple of sort of student flats and things before Sandy and I moved to London to a flat, which we then did a lot of different things too and we've moved about 10 yards from there across the road <laughs> maybe you know we're all like. adventurous so you know what you like there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> well let's move on to talking about things slightly further afield so you have traveled quite a bit by the sounds of it your first choice of your favorite spaces is one of the icons of modernism which is falling water uh, in pennsylvania uh, which was of course built by frank lloyd wright in the 1930s I must admit, it's always been on my personal list of places to go before I die, but I've never managed it yet. Tell us about going there. What's it like? It's worth it. You should go. But it isn't easy to get to. You have to fly to somewhere else in the States and then get a flight to Pennsylvania. And then you have to drive 90 miles to a place where there is almost nothing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I went by myself, which I do... Uh, from, well, pre-COVID, which I did from time to time. I think it was it was November, which was great because it meant it was quiet because it's it's very popular. Mm. The house looks fabulous at all times of year. Mm. I mean, for those who don't know, it is built on a waterfall by Frank Lloyd Wright, and it's set into trees. And so in the autumn, everything is yellow and gold and 
fabulous, but it looks terrific in the snow and the summer and the spring. And it changes because the seasons there are so powerfully reflected in the landscape. Even with Bear Run, the stream that runs under the house. I was reading about the client who's called Edgar Kaufman Jr. And I, I gather he was expecting the house to be built down from the waterfall so he could admire it from his house. But instead, Frank yeah. Lloyd Wright plonked it right on top of the waterfall. <laughs> That's right. Well, Edgar Kaufman Jr. worked in Frank Lloyd Wright's studio. He was in his late 60s. He'd only built two small houses in that preceding two years. He had a whole group of students who were, you know, fans. Um, I think people thought it was all over for him. And Edgar Kaufman Jr. persuaded his father to commission Frank Lloyd Wright for the house. Mm -hmm. He and his wife Lillian used to stay in a hut with no water and, you know, electricity and stuff. And yes, yes, he thought he was going to look at the waterfall and Frank Lloyd Wright said, no, 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 we're building on the waterfall, which is just brilliant yeah and it's and it's and it's madness as well isn't it i mean from from a technical perspective i i think he was the client was very worried wasn't he about the concrete and the cantilevers and and it sagging or not being reinforced enough yeah well i mean the the structural issues are quite similar to other properties and other other buildings that he'd built but so there is a very strong core Mm. which is fixed into the stone Yes, and then the whole building cantilevers out. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he was inspired because some of the rock cantilevers, and that's what causes the waterfall. Okay. That then, you know, gushes underneath it. Yeah. It is superb. I went back several days. Oh, did you? Yeah. And, and did you see different things each time? Yes. And the water, it just sounds fabulous. I mean, I love being out. There was, I, lo- I go and walk in the woods in the heath every day and mm. I love being in the trees but hearing the woods and the birds but also the water all the time it's very good for the soul yeah it's yes. interesting that isn't it what is it about water do you think it's because is it an anthropological thing obviously water has always sustained us so as human beings perhaps we just feel settled when we're when we have easy access to it in a way yeah, I don't know, because, I mean, my three choices all relate to water, and I didn't really yeah. realise that until until I'd chosen them. I don't know what it is. It does feel as though it's quite a sort of primitive thing that, that just connects you to the earth, you know. Mm. And within that building, so much is about connecting. You know, the stone from which it's built is quarried there. Yeah. So it feels hewn out of that landscape yeah. itself, doesn't it? And the water mm. gushes from its undercarriage and mm. nature and building are one thing there, aren't they? Yes, and actually in the living room, there's a canopy that slides back and you can go down these steps that are suspended down into the water and you could sit in the bottom step with your feet in the water. Really? Yeah. They don't let you do that. but no. <laughs> in theory. I'd love to do that. You didn't yeah. make a desperate run for it. <laughs> She's flying in all directions. <laughs> I'm going in. <laughs> I've got a quote here from, from the client, Edgar Kaufman Jr., who said, Wright understood that people were creatures of nature. Hence, an architecture which conformed to nature would conform to what was basic in people. Although all of falling water is opened by broad bands of windows... People inside are sheltered as in a deep cave, secure in the sense of the hill behind them. That really stayed with me, that quote, because mm. you don't necessarily think of the building in that way. What's it like mm. to be actually inside it? Does it feel quite 
cave-like and intimate. Yes, it does, actually. Yeah. It does, because you cross a bridge, and there was a bridge there originally, and then he reinstated it. So you see the building, and then you, you cross a bridge and go under a port cochere. And then the entrance itself is actually quite small and dark, and it's stone. And there is a jet of water where you can, you know, wash your hands or your feet or whatever. It's, it's, so all those little things are sort of attended to. Yeah. So that is, that is quite dark when you go in. And then you almost immediately come into the living area. But the living area is a square in the centre around the hearth where nothing happens or it could happen. And then all the different activities happen off it, like the seating built in all the way along the windows. And all the cushions are sort of like autumnal colours, yellows and golds, and and that permeates the whole building. And it's still like that. Mm. Edgar Kaufman Jr. preserved it mm. and he kept it. So the books are still on the shelves and the paintings that they had and they curated it. But in you know, but with the personal touch of a home, it's it's although some of the things are very valuable and beautiful, they're also chosen. Mm. But there's an area where you could do homeworking, and then there's an area very modern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then there's an area where you have a kitchen table, and that can be completely extended so that you could feed twenty. Oh wow! So that sort of that can stretch right out into the square. And then the floor is huge slabs of riven stone, which is the same stone that's in the riverbed. Okay. And also making the walls. Mm. It's incredible. But then you go up a staircase, which again is quite narrow and it's stone. And then bookcases are set into it too. So every mm. single piece of it feels thought about. Yeah. And so the bedrooms aren't big, but they're mm. incredibly carefully designed for views and every space has a terrace mm. actually for home working you go up to the top floor and you actually go outside and there's a little staircase that led up to Kaufman's office okay which was separate but I think then Kaufman Jr lived up there and I think he moved his bed so that it was faces east and looks directly out the window to the sunrise or yeah okay what you're describing actually is quite an intimate building, isn't it? Because Very. It's really interesting. I'd, I'd love to go because you, you actually you see a lot of the exterior in photographs, but mm. you can't really get a sense of what it's like inside. You can't. You can't. It's so humane. It is so intimate, and yet it's so comfortable. I mean, I would love to live there. Would you? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would. would. Well, you got to move out of your place first. Well, 30 be... years. <laughs> we... So it's a big commitment. <laughs> We'd be a bit stuck. There isn't much round about. <laughs> no, there isn't. So what, what is roundabout? What, what, what would you do if you lived there? Apart from walking nature, what's the local town like? There isn't a local there town. There isn't one. There isn't a local town. There was nothing. There's nothing. There so so nothing. People, all these people that are visiting it, what, where are they staying? What are they doing? Well, the woman who uh, rented me the place I stayed, it was a house in the middle of absolutely nowhere. She said she had thought she would do Airbnb for walkers because it is an area of natural beauty. But she found that, um, in fact, there were a lot of architects who came to see Falling Water and they were a yeah. much better clientele. OK. So <laughs> there yeah. are Airbnbs. Frank Lloyd Wright, I think, was in his late 60s, wasn't he, when he was commissioned mm. to build it. That gives quite a lot of hope to retired or retiring architects later in their careers, doesn't it? I mean, it's pretty amazing. 
It does. It does. Yes. Uh, Sandy was 68 when I went to see it. So I sent him a postcard saying, you don't need to worry. He built 200 buildings after this. <laughs> really? Is yes. it? Wow. That's amazing. But he thought it was all over. I mean, I think everyone thought it was all over. You know, he was he was being hailed as the the old man who had you know, done interesting things. Yeah. And then uh, he had a renaissance. Yeah. Yeah. But a great commission. I want to ask you, actually, if you wanted to work with Frank Lloyd Wright, if you go back in time, would you work with him? Because then you could be right, right and right. Very good. Let's move on to your second choice, which is on the face of it, very different. It's um, the Alhambra in Granada in southern Spain, which is, of course, a complex of palaces built by the Moors from 1238 onwards. At first glance, very different, but actually, are there some similarities here between the Alhambra and Falling Water? <laughs> There's a lot of similarities, yeah. actually. And um, we went there because we were building a project for St John's College in Oxford, where we had a pond, and we were working with the artist Susanna Heron on this stone which she was carving, and we wanted to create something where inside and outside you got the reflection of the light off the water, mm -hmm. the caustics. So we decided that the place to go and see this was Andalusia. So we went to Seville and then we went on to Granada, uh, to the Alhambra. The Alhambra is unbelievable. Actually, Sandy went home and then I stayed on, so I did go back on my own as well. Um, <laughs> what do you do? It's out of interest. When you're in these spaces on your own, what are you doing? Are you? Do you just walk around experiencing it or do you sketch or do you think what goes on well i try and go to quiet time so if you go once then you can figure out when people aren't other people aren't going to be there okay so so you I do a like to go by myself yeah and then i just experience them mm. i think it's just they sort of permeate you in a way these i mean when these places are so special the alhambra is so special i mean it was a conversion because originally it was a fort and, um, you know, it's red and, you know, it's called the Red Palace. That's what Alhambra means. From the outside, it's it's quite fortress-like. But you go through forest of woods to get there and then to get to the palaces, you climb up through these gardens that are all different and all have water mm. and they smell fantastic mm. and they have shade and the landscape affects all of your senses. Yeah. It's what you hear, the, the sound. I mean, when... We were actually taping the sound of the, the, the water as well, which was different oh, wow. in different places. And then, of course, the effect of the play of light all over the walls. And then in the Alhambra, in the palaces themselves, the thing is that they're actually quite small spaces and the materials are very simple and they're almost the same materials. It's timber and stone and plaster with marble dust in it. And that's it. Yeah. And then they're crafted just as falling waters. They have amazing light and shadows and, mm. you know, it changes from light to dark. But the manipulation of the light, it's kind of golden. It glows. Mm. And in the Hall of the Two Sisters, beyond that, there is a room in which you sit. It's quite small and it has windows on three sides. And honestly, it feels as though you're floating over the world. You see the mountains and everything because you're very high up. Yeah. And it must be wonderful in the summer that the breeze must just come in. It's just transcendental. And the carving and the tile patterns are, they're like a kaleidoscope or something. You know, I mean, they, I think they do something to your mind. You know, that you really, they sort of, they do really do reflect infinity. These geometric shapes that are then changing all the time. So you mentioned the Hall of the Two Sisters. 
Yeah. And you've just given me this this postcard, which I think is that is that it. That's it. That's isn't the it? ceiling there. So it's supposed to represent paradise. And, right. But that is actually made of pieces of plaster that are rectangular, and then they have a sort of quarter segment cut out of them. But they're geometrically arranged so that they have this amazing three-dimensional quality. They so that's do. just plaster. Yeah, I mean, looking up into the dome, which is sort of star-shaped, it looks like there are stalactites coming off an ice <laughs> palace or something, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the light is incredible as well because there are windows in it high up. But it's it's sort of golden. Yeah. It is just very, very beautiful. You can sit in that space in the end. That's that small room yeah. with these windows on three sides. Yeah. So you see how how beautiful it is. Every surface is adorned, isn't it? As you say, yes. actually much of the palette is, is very simple, but, but mm. there's so much intricacy in it. It's a little bit sort of Taj Mahal-like as well. There's just I haven't been to the Taj Mahal. so much going on. Yes. There is <laughs> so much on going the list, on. Taj Mahal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, um, but it's actually monochrome. It's so pretty much one colour. Yeah. Except for the tiles at the bottom. So there's obviously this very sprawling place, but is there a sense of intimacy about this place? Oh, no, it's very much. It, it's, it, I mean, it's only sprawling in like it's like a village. Yeah. There are individual buildings and yeah. spaces within them are actually quite intimate. They're yeah. not big at all. So yeah. it has the same sort of feeling of a human scale that Falling Water has. Mm. And I think actually of all the great buildings I've seen, I suppose I realised once when I saw one of Le Corbusier's buildings, they all have this intimacy. Mm. They feel very comfortable. That's right. Yeah, and they can affect you emotionally, can't they? Very much. It's, it's strange that, the way that you can put walls around something to create space and as you say capture light and manipulate light in a certain way and it completely affects you emotionally yes i very much had that experience um talking about le corbusier at ronchamp have you mm. been to ronchamp yes yes it, it just my wife Faye and i went to ronchamp and we climbed up the hill and it was it was just the most magical experience it looks like you know, you're going to knock on the door and find Papa Smurf inside or something because it's this mad-looking thing, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? But we went in, there was no one else in there, and we sat in there for an hour or so just just looking at the way the light was penetrating the building. And then by the time we came out, the mist had come up from the valley and the whole thing was enveloped in this shroud. And it, I, I absolutely admired the way that you've made the pilgrimage to these different places because you, you really do have these transformative, transportive experiences, don't you, when you do it? You do. Just before we move on, this is a tricky question. But for someone listening who, you know, let's say lives in a studio flat in Peckham or something and is thinking, well, what's the Alhambra got to do with my living space? How would someone take inspiration from it and apply it in their own home, would you say? I know it's a difficult question, but what could we learn from it? Oh, I think you could learn so much because... The spaces are actually relatively small and everything in it is about how it has been decorated. I mean, if you took, for example, the tiling patterns, the tiling patterns are all geometric. They're unbelievably complex, but they're also really playful. I was fascinated by the tiling because one thing that happened is that they there is a pattern that starts and then they change the color. Mm which looks superb. It really looks superb. So they could learn that from it. I mean, 
often they're quite complex patterns, but where the tiles change from blue and then they, they go into green and then they go into yellow, mm. within an overall pattern of other things, mm. it's very compelling. It's very mm. hard not to keep looking at it and mm. and somehow you do get drawn into it. Or the other one, which is the the little bird, which is made from which is actually made from triangles and circles. Mm-hmm. And you end up with this very playful tiling. Yeah. But then the, the upper parts of the walls, so they're monochrome, but they're decorated. And actually, they have poems written into the wall. Okay. And then those are taken around doorways and things like that. And then the, where the windows are, they are framing a relationship between one space and another and, and what you see from it. So you could have a small flat and you could think very carefully about what you would do to make that space yours Mm. and I mean actually when my daughter was a teenager she put something down the side of the staircase which said this might not be the party you'd planned but while we're here we should dance (laughs) and We've kept it. Yeah. So the hole's been painted, but we've kept it. Yeah. So you can... She just bought some letters and stuck them on the wall as a 14-year-old. Yeah. So it didn't cost anything. Yeah. But actually, that's exactly what happens in the Alhambra. Yeah. That they have poems that reflect what people were thinking. That's really nice. I, I mean, I th- it always worries me a bit when... You know, we all do this thing. We travel to another country and we want to, in a way, bring back some of that culture with us and you know you put a load of Moroccan tiles up in your bathroom <laughs> and suddenly doesn't quite look the same does it but but there are you know uh, in a previous house that I lived in we put in simple square black and white tiles on the floor mm. but actually if you just stagger them mm. slightly it's amazing because the eye bends them out of shape and they become sort of Bridget Riley like almost mm-hmm. so there are there are quite simple things you can do I think rather than going the full Moroccan um, yeah, yeah. And actually, that texture and and um, and the patterns are they're interesting and enlivening to live with, aren't they? Yeah. Let's move on to your third and final choice, which is another brilliant one, I think, which is um, Alvar Aalto's experimental house in Finland, which he and his second wife Elisa built for themselves as a summer house in the 1950s. Again, I'm jealous that you've been there, but <laughs> tell us about the context of this one. How do you reach it, and what what's the landscape like there? Well, it's changed because it used to be that you had to get there by boat because it was an island, but uh, they built a bridge, so now you can drive there. But the family, I mean, his descendants still own the house, but they allow the, I don't know what the, situ, you know, what the setup is with the state or whatever, they can use it when they want to. And the rule was that they're not allowed to introduce any health and safety measures to people going through the woods to get to it. Okay. Which is a good thing, because if they had put in sort of handrails and things, you have to make your way through the trees, and it's not dangerous. It's just like walking through trees Yeah. (laughs) in a wood. So I was quite pleased to hear they'd done that. Yeah. So it means you don't quite approach it in the same way as you would have he would have done, yeah. but you can see how they would have done it. So there is this enormous slab of stone mm. that goes down into the lake. They cut some steps so the boat would have come in there mm. and then clamber up to the house, Okay, which is tiny. But in Finland, a lot of people have summer houses on islands. Yeah, so it doesn't need to be big because it's, it's just an escape, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. It's just a place to go for the weekend, so it's yeah. pretty basic. Yeah. It's almost like a small study, small kitchen, small double bedroom, small single bedroom and a bathroom. That's it. Yeah. Around the courtyard. So what is it about this place? Presumably it's the materiality, is it? Is that why you've chosen it? Um, it's the setting. I mean, again, I suppose going through the woods or coming across the lake and you can hear the water again is pretty amazing. So I think you do get a sort of sense of peacefulness. And I don't know about you, but with COVID, I did used to go a lot more walks. I yeah, I think we all did. Yeah. I mean, that first spring, mm. I was very aware of the spring in a, in a way that before then, I think I was too busy yeah. to notice enough. So it's, a, it's rather like that. So you experience something similar. And then the outside is painted white. And um, he made it very high. So the roofs slope up to create this very high enclosure. And then you have to kind of go round. So I suppose it's quite off-putting. In that way, it's a bit like the Alhambra because it's quite fortress-like. Mm. Um, it's not inviting from the outside. Mm. I mean, if you didn't know where you were going, you would probably not go in. You would feel you were trespassing. Do you know what I mean? Okay. It feels private. Mm -hmm. And then you go around and then inside you've got the brickwork. Yeah, which faces the, the courtyard side, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have this view down the lake, which is pretty amazing. And then the courtyard. And in the courtyard, of course, he experimented. So he used 50 different sorts of bricks and tiles again. So they all use tiles. But it's the same. It's, it's brick from the earth and timber and stone. So it's the same materials again and very much of its place. Yeah. So you think that's important to use materials that have that context? Yeah. Mm. Well, we're very interested in place. Everywhere is special mm. and responding to what it is mm. rather than, I mean, uh, Alto used to say, um, man-made materials were like drugstore materials. As far as he was concerned, he wasn't interested in man-made building materials. Yeah. He really wanted to use timber and brick and, and so on. What, brick's an interesting one, isn't it? Because as you say, it's elemental, it's from the earth, but it's also retains heat well. And actually that house, his house was triple glazed. It was very, very, very energy efficient. It was a real eco house. Okay. Yeah, because it's called the experimental house mm. for a few reasons, isn't it? But he experimented clearly with these different types of bricks and the effects that he could get from combining them in different ways. And then, of course, it's also because he, he experimented with passive solar heating, didn't he? Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating. He built this small summer house for himself, but he also wanted it to be this testing ground as well. Well, I suppose it's very personal. Yeah. Probably when he did it, he wasn't thinking it was going to turn into an exhibit. Yeah. You know, I think he probably just did it for himself. I mean, I've got a photo of it here. I saw a photo of this when I was a student. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was wonderful, but just as a sort of tapestry. Uh, but I didn't actually know what it was. So you see the courtyard there, and you're looking through the white walls of the outside. Yeah. It's just the bricks and the different patterns. It, it just makes it such a fascinating facade, doesn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. But uh, it, is, it is really quite small. Yeah. So in your view, what makes Alvaro Alto important? Is he one of your design heroes? Yes. Why is that? Well... It's very interesting to go and see buildings. You know, you see something in a magazine or something. I mean, I had looked at Alta's work for 
20 years or something before I went to see it. And then when you do, you see it in a completely different way because Finland is almost completely flat and it's not very built up. So most of it is woodland and it's silver birch trees that are vertical. And you drive through this for miles and miles and then you come out and it's just a lake and it seems vast. And that's what you see in his work. He does this thing with these verticals all the time and then he creates these vast spaces as well. So when you see it in context, it just feels like it completely fits into the place. Mm -hmm. But if you take something like the town hall at Senat Salo, where, so Senat Salo was a tiny little place where he'd actually grown up, but he wanted to create a building that was quite, looked quite big on the outside. Mm -hmm. But then you go up steps and you go into this courtyard. It's a bit like the experimental house, but then the scale's really small. You can sort of touch the eaves. Mm -hmm. And it it's, again, it feels very, made so there's just sand and he's pushed these bits of clay pipe that form these circles into the ground okay so it it's almost like sculpture but it's not pretentious it's anybody could do that yeah and make leave your mark uh, but it's very personal yeah i mean at saint Salo, one of the he's he's got this pitched roof over the it's just a council office for a small village but then it kicks up in the corner. It's like something in a leaf where you get a little fold or something. There's something about that tactility. Mm. And again, it's this sort of human touch. And then he built very, very close to the trees. He had big arguments with engineers who kept saying, you can't build there. But he just battled it out. And um, the buildings have survived it. <laughs> but it means they're really embedded in the trees as the experimental house is. Yeah. I was really struck by what you said about how you'd looked at photographs of his work but never, you know, potentially fully understood it because yeah. that's absolutely my experience as well. So a few years ago, we took the Modern House team out to Helsinki. Oh. Yeah, and we went to Al Rialto's house and studio and we were all completely bowled over by it. <laughs> it was the most unbelievable experience, I have to say, and I would urge anyone to go to Helsinki and see this thing because it the changes of level and the little dislocations that go on and the way that he plays with the space and the way he frames the, the light and the views, it, 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 it doesn't come across in photos at all, no. I don't think. And, you know, one might easily wonder what the fuss is about, but I think to, to visit an Alvaralto building is, is an experience like no other that I've had. Yeah. Um, I found it fascinating. So I'm really interested to see you pick this this house as well what was it like to be inside the experimental house how does it feel it feels very very intimate and the courtyard feels like a room but a really fun room yeah the, the, he uses courtyards kind of as an extension of the indoor space doesn't yeah it, it well it, it very much is a room and so he's taken part of the wall away and yep. and then that's the highest bit which faces out to where the boat would come in and then he's put on these verticals. So it's like the trees. I mean, because the, the trees are so close together, they're not, they're, they're very slender mm. and generally sort of grey, white. Mm. And he paints the outside of the building white. And then those bits, so they're, they are just like trees. But it's also a bit of a barricade. But you can see that from the courtyard, it's like a window mm. that you're looking out. So it is constantly framing views as well. And in the centre, in the dead centre, is a pit where you can have a fire. So mm. you can imagine in a kind of autumn evening having a fire going and all sitting around. Yeah. 
I wonder what they would eat. Fish. <laughs> yeah, we had some good food in Helsinki, but I'm trying to remember what it was. That's <laughs> I know, some pretty niche stuff. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. <laughs> to it remember. was reindeer. <laughs> Yes, there's a bit of reindeer, isn't reindeer, there? Reindeer, fish, there are a lot of berries. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they do put berries. Yeah. I mean, if you could have your own summer house beside the water, would it be a bit like this one, do you think? Oh, yes. And I'd have a sauna like this one has. Would you? Yes, I would. Which is the family. So when I went, the family had booked it for the following weekend. It takes three days to get the sauna to the right temperature. So the smoke was sort of coming out. Oh, really? Um, I mean, it's beautifully, well, it's, basic inside but it's also beautiful and the hearth is the focus again mm. you know as it is at um falling water well it's interesting that isn't it because we tend now to design our living spaces around the flat screen tv <laughs> but of course traditionally it should be the hearth and that, yeah that's probably a, start, a good starting point for any building isn't it i think so yeah do you have a hearth we do we've got a couple of hearths in our house and we're just in the final throes of refurbishing ours, but we actually took out the wood burners that are in there and are returning them to open fires. And I like that elemental thing of being next to a, a proper fire. Yeah. Lobbing logs onto it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like the right thing to me, yeah. especially in the countryside. No, absolutely. Well, we, yeah, we, we did that with COVID when we were sitting outside, which is really quite nice in the evening yeah. to have this log fire. Yeah. It is, um, yeah, an outdoor one is even better. Mm. So finally, then, I'm going to give you the choice of being able to live for the rest of your life in one of these three buildings. <laughs> Which one are you going to pick? Oh, I think it would be falling water. I think I could live in the heart of the woods. It is just so extraordinary. And it's a mixture of comfortable. I mean, it is that you could cook there and you could entertain friends and you could go for walks in the woods and... You would be so in tune with the seasons and the weather. Yeah. And I think that, well, it makes me feel better. And I guess that's what I wanted to ask you, because you've really spoken very eloquently about your love of water and nature. And you've made these pilgrimages to these quite remote places. But you yourself, of course, have, have got a practice in London and you live in Camden, which is, you know, fairly inner city kind of place to live. How does that work? Is it is, for you? Is that out of necessity that you have to live there, or have you found your peace with it? How do you deal with that? Well, we came from Scotland, and Sandy was more reluctant to move to London than I was. But when I once said to him, "Shall we move back?" he said, "No, I love London." Yeah. <laughs> so he loves living in the city. And now we have two children. We have grandchildren who live quite near. So that sort of fixes us where yeah. we are at. But we have a garden and I have planted quite a lot of trees and I garden a lot mm. and the gardens are important to me. And in our buildings, we finished Lambeth Palace Library last year and there we created a pond so that we bring the water right up to the building and the caustics are reflected in and we have the dappled light of the trees and bringing the garden into all the spaces mm. has been key and the same at St. John's where we created the pond with the caustics. So it was only quite recently I realised that in all of our buildings we've, we've created gardens and those relationships with, with trees. And I'm thinking that I need to build a pond in our garden. I was going to ask you that. You do need a <laughs> pond, definitely. You need some water do. boatmen, don't you? I do. I do. I actually used to. I had a concept of having one when I was going to, I mean, it's not a very big garden, but... 
that we could create something with a pump where it could sort of step down into a pond and then we could recirculate it. Well, I, we had a pond in my family home growing up and my dad managed to build it on a slope. So one end was always exposed, <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't ideal. But, but we did get the odd frog and, uh, you know, kept, oh, kept us amused yeah, as children. But it's nice, isn't it? Just a small body of water. Yeah. Actually, it really changes your experience of the garden, I think. Yeah. Claire, thank you so, so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed it. It's fascinating hearing all about your pilgrimages. And um, I hope there'll be many more. Where are you going to go next, out of interest? I don't know. I'd like to go to India. I'd like to see Chandigarh. Yeah, I'd like to see Chandigarh. <laughs> That's a good idea. Can I come? <laughs> Based on what you said today, I think that, that some of the palaces in Rajasthan would yes would be good to see. I yeah, think, they would. Like they would. Well, I'll plan it. I do plan them quite carefully. Yeah. I get music that's... Um, and books that are by Finnish writers, you know, so when I went to Finland, then it, I took Finnish authors. And so when I drive about, I listen to this music, Sibelius. So you go for the truly immersive experience of the right music and the, and, the, and the books. And that's great. I do. When I went to Norway, I read Ibsen. Yeah. Oh, wow. Hmm. It's not like us when we went to Cape Cod to see all the <laughs> modernism there. We were listening to Charlie and Lola CDs the whole way around to keep our kids quiet. Well, yeah, yeah, I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. Please do rate and review the podcast if you can find the time. It's massively appreciated and it helps other people to find us. If you're a fan of modern design and architecture, you can find all sorts of inspiration on our website, themodernhouse.com. The classicists among you might find something of interest on our sister site too, which is inigo.com. This episode was produced by Gabriella Jones and the executive producer was Kate Taylor for Feast Collective.